Well, let's pray together now. Father, we do thank you so much for your word to us, and we pray that as we turn to this short section of scripture now, that you would help me and help us all meditate on these things. Help us to be shaped to be the Christians and church that you call us to be. We ask you all in Jesus' name and your glory. Amen. Well, please do have your Bible open there at that uh, first of the and chapter three. We're gradually, of course, working our way through this pastoral letter in our morning services here at the moment. And we come to a new section of uh, the letter today. Uh, in chapter one, uh, Paul has underlined the importance of maintaining and defending sound doctrine in the life of the church. Then in chapter 2, uh, Paul described what the uh, public worship of the church ought to look like. Uh, then here in chapter 3, we come to a, a new section uh, of uh, the book. We come to a section about the pastoral care of the church. And so as uh, Timothy is leading that church in Ephesus. What are the structures that he needs to put in place in the life of the church so that the church is cared for well? And you notice straight away, don't you, if you look at this chapter and the first two paragraphs of it, that Paul speaks about two different offices in the life of the local church. So in verses 1 to 7, he is speaking about overseers. And then in verses 8 to 13, he's speaking about deacons. Uh, this morning, we're going to uh, look just at the section to do with overseers. And then, God willing, next week, we'll look at the office of the deacon. And I'd like us to approach these first seven verses uh, in this way this morning. I'd like us, first of all, to see that there is a noble task and then there are necessary qualifications and then finally I want to look at numerous applications of these things so for forgive the alliteration but that's how we're going to roll this morning a noble task necessary qualifications and then numerous applications for us as a church so we begin with this noble task I wonder if uh, you've ever been in the situation where you've been hunting for a new job. Uh, maybe you look in the, the newspaper, in the ads there, or maybe today you look online uh, on a, a website advertising jobs and you, you have a look at what the opportunities are uh, out there that you might uh, make, uh, take advantage of. Uh, maybe there's a particular job title uh, advertised there and it, it catches your eye. And it, it sounds maybe impressive, or maybe it sounds interesting, or whatever. And this job uh, catches your eye. And you know, of course, that you need to find out more than simply looking at the job title and, and thinking what that might involve. You need to read on down, and you need to read the job description. You need to consider what actually does 
that job involve on a day-to-day basis, practically speaking? If you had that job, what would you actually be doing? And really, it's the same with this office or job, we might say, of overseer in the life of the church. Uh, The title overseer is one thing, but far more important than just the title is, of course, the job description, if you like. What does this job of being an overseer in the life of the church actually entail? And when Paul calls it a noble task, as he does here in verse 1, what does that task actually involve? And you, you probably noticed already in these verses that Paul doesn't actually give us the job description, does he? He hints at one or two things along the way, but he doesn't go into any great detail about what this job of being an overseer in the church actually entails. And so first of all, we need to just step back from these verses. We need to look at the rest of the New Testament. We need to ask, what is this role of overseer in the life of the local church? And the very first thing that we should make note of is the fact that the title overseer in the New Testament is interchangeable with the title elder. So there are a number of different passages where one moment it's speaking of overseers and then in the next moment it's speaking of elders and it's speaking about exactly the same people. Uh, Today we often use the uh, the word elder but it's interchangeable with the word overseer. And what does their work involve? Well, we could turn to 1 Peter and chapter 5, where Peter says to the elders there, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And in a a similar way, in Acts chapter 20, when Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders there, he says to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which obtained with his own blood. So being an elder or being an overseer means to have been entrusted with this responsibility of providing pastoral care to the church. And a key part of that, of course, involves teaching and preaching the word of God. The ordinary, the primary means by which the flock of God is shepherded is through the preaching of God's word. And so Paul says to Timothy later on in this letter, chapter 5, verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching 
and teaching. Likewise, in the letter to the Hebrews, the writer says there, remember your leaders. Who are your leaders? He goes on, those who spoke to you the word of God. This, you see, is the noble task that is given to those who are overseers or elders in the church. This is the job description, if you like. It involves leading the church, ruling the church, caring for the church, shepherding the church, and foremost in all of these, spe- all of these things, speaking the word of God to the church. Jesus, who is the great shepherd, wants his flock, the church, to be looked after well. He wants his flock to be cared for and fed and led. And it's to that end that the the great shepherd, the over-shepherd, gives to the church under-shepherds, overseers, elders, those who are responsible for these things in a particular way in the life of the local church. It's for the well-being of the church that Jesus provides elders for the church. That's the noble task. And then, having looked at that, let's now consider the necessary qualifications. And again, to continue the same illustration, once you've looked at the job description for a particular job, uh, the next thing you'll look at, if you're interested in that, are the qualifications that you would need in order to do that job yourself. So if the job advert says that you need a PhD in nuclear physics in order to do this job, well, you know that that rules you out unless or until you have a PhD in nuclear physics. And again, when it comes to this office of overseer or elder in the church, there are, Paul says, necessary qualifications. It is a noble task, but it's not for everyone. What are the the necessary qualifications? Well, for starters, we need to think back to the verses we looked at last week. And those verses made clear that this is going to be a male role in the life of the church. We looked, didn't we, at those final few verses of chapter 2. And we saw that the way that God has set up his household, the church, should reflect the order that is established in creation. And it's for that reason uh, that this is a a role for men in the church. Paul has made that point already at the end of chapter 2. Those leading and and teaching in the church uh, are to be men in in the church. Uh, And so he simply assumes that now uh, for the elders. He he speaks of them as men, having already made that point at the end of chapter 2. That's one qualification. Uh, The next is that the person must themselves desire this office of being an overseer. That's what Paul is implying, isn't it, in in verse 1. He says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Paul is saying, if a person is called to be an overseer, you should expect that there will be this aspiration this desire in their heart to serve the church in that way. They need to sense this inward call to this role in the church. No one should be dragged into it against their will. They must desire it for themselves. 
And yet having said that, an inward desire to be an elder is never enough on its own. Now, someone might desire to be an elder in the church for all of the wrong reasons. They might aspire to be an elder just because they want a bit more status, they want a bit more recognition. And they think that this is a way that they can get a bit more power and authority for themselves. Now that kind of desire doesn't qualify someone to be an elder in the church. In fact, it disqualifies them from being an elder in the church. And so a person's desire to be an elder needs to go hand in hand, both with God's call for them to be an elder, and also the church's recognition of that. Now when someone is truly called to be an elder, those three things will all line up together. God calls them to it, they desire it, and the church recognizes it. That begs a question then, doesn't it? How can and how should and how does the church recognize when a person is called to be an elder? Again, it's a noble task, but it's not for everyone. That's what Paul turns to now in verses 2 to 7. How does the church recognize those who are called to be elders? And he gives us this long list of qualifications for being an elder. There are no fewer than 14 items on this list in verses 2 to 7. And even at that, it's not an exhaustive list. Paul could have mentioned other things, of course. But this will suffice as a a reliable guide. It's going to help Timothy and it will help the church in general to identify those who are indeed qualified for this office of elder or overseer in the church. And to try and get a handle on these 14 qualifications, I want to try and break them into more bite-sized chunks. We're not going to have 14 points uh, in this next section uh, of the sermon. I want you to see there are basically two main chunks. And very simply, they are as follows. Elders must be godly and elders must be gifted. That's it boiled down to two points for you. Elders must be godly. And elders must be gifted. So firstly, elders must be godly. And that's what Paul is getting at right at the start of verse 2, isn't it? Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Of course, that doesn't mean that they need to be perfect people. Otherwise, no one could be an elder. It would rule everybody out. Rather, Paul is saying that if someone is going to be considered as an elder in the church... He must be living a consistent, godly lifestyle. As someone has put it, such should be his reputation that if the elder's name were posted for comment, no one would be able to bring a substantiated charge against him. What does that consistent, godly lifestyle look like in practice? Well, in the next few verses, Paul then gets to the the nitty-gritty of this. And I want to arrange these godliness qualifications into three main subgroups. So we'll look at them in a completely different order to the way that Paul does, but I don't think the order is important here. 
Firstly, notice this, an elder must be above reproach in relation to himself. So he must be sober-minded, says Paul. That is, he must be a clear-headed kind of man, someone who doesn't overreact to things in an irrational way or in an overly emotional way. Someone who can think clearly and particularly do so in a time of crisis because churches go through times of crisis. Indeed, Timothy's church was going through a time of crisis when Paul wrote this letter to him. And Timothy would need elders around him who were sober-minded, clear-headed in the midst of all of that. And the elder is to be self-controlled. Self-control is, of course, one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul says that gracious work of the Holy Spirit must be evident in this man's life. His passions, his appetites, whatever they may be, must be under control. He must be a disciplined kind of man. And then Paul points to two particular areas where this self-control needs to show itself in this man's life, both in relation to alcohol and in relation to money. He's not to be a, a drunkard. He's not to be a lover of money. In both of those key areas, he must be living a godly life. And then there's another qualification that we can include here as well. And that is what Paul says in verse 6. He says, the requirement here is that this person must not be a recent convert. And why not? Well, Paul continues, he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And so Paul anticipates a situation which inevitably is going to arise at, at some point in probably most churches. And that is that a, a man who is not yet a Christian maybe starts attending the church. And after a little while, uh, professes faith. And this man is very naturally gifted. He's a nice kind of guy. He's easy to get along with. He's got a good job. He's got a nice family. He's maybe quite well to do. And the response in the church may be, well, that is the kind of person we should have as an elder. And the temptation for the church is then to fast track someone like that into the eldership, particularly if it's a church that is in need of new elders. And Paul sounds a note of caution here, doesn't he? He says fast-tracking a new convert into the eldership puts them at great risk because it can lead them into this sin of pride. Here I am, I'm only a Christian a few months and already I'm an elder in the church. That kind of thing. It can lead to pride for which they would fall into the condemnation of the devil. That is, the devil's main sin was pride. And he was condemned for it. And so Paul says a, a degree of spiritual maturity gathered over time is necessary for those who would be elders. And then notice this, an elder must be above reproach in relation to his family. So not just in relation to himself, but in relation to his family as well. Paul says he, he must be the husband of one wife. 
which is a, a way of saying he must be living in line with biblical standards when it comes to sex and relationships and marriage. It's not saying that he has to be married, but rather that he, he must be in line with what the Bible says about these things. Of course, in those days, um, in uh, Ephesus at that time, polygamy was tolerated in society. Uh, Paul is saying this is something that Christians must not enter into. In our society, polygamy is not legal, uh, of course. And yet there are a whole host of other ways in our society that didn't exist in their society where someone can fall into sexual sin, pornography, and so forth. Paul is saying uh, someone to be an elder must be above reproach in all of these areas, sex, relationships, marriage. And then verses 4 and 5 again speak about the, the family life of a prospective elder. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So there's a, an analogy drawn here between God's household and this person's household. Paul says a person's home life is, is a test case for whether or not they're qualified to be an elder in the church. The church is God's household. And if you want to see if a man is suitable for being a leader in God's household, look at how they're leading their own household first. Are they leading that household in a godly way? If this person is married, how do they treat their wife? If they've got children, how do they treat their children? Uh, do they bring them up in the instruction of the Lord? And then connected to the, the family life of the elder is also this requirement of hospitality. That is, people are to be welcome in the elder's home as a way of sharing Christian fellowship with one another there. So we've seen how the elder must be above reproach in relation to himself and in relation to his family as well. And then as well as that, an elder must also be above reproach in relation to everyone else as well. So we can think of it in these three concentric circles, the elder himself, the elder and his family, and then his elder with everybody else, both in the church and outside the church. Paul says he must not be quarrelsome, he must not be violent, but gentle. And again, gentleness is an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. And that gracious work of the Spirit must be shining through in the way that this person relates to others, and especially those who disagree with him. He should respond with gentleness, not being hot-headed, not snapping at people, not losing his temper, not always getting into arguments, and not bearing grudges against people, being quick to forgive others. And under this point, we can also include verse 7, can't we? Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Paul is saying he, he must have a good reputation in society as a whole. The devil loves to set traps for all Christians, and especially so for those who hold positions of leadership, in the church. The reason is that, of course, the devil knows that when a church leader or a church elder falls into sin, 
It is far more damaging for the church as a whole. It tarnishes the gospel in the eyes of the world. An elder must have and must maintain a good reputation in the outside world to avoid those kinds of scandals. In all these ways, an elder must be godly. Above reproach in relation to himself, in relation to his family, and in relation to everyone else as well. And as well as being godly, he must also be gifted. In all of these qualifications, of these 14, 13 of them are about godliness. And one of them is about giftedness. That shows really where the balance lies, doesn't it? Giftedness is very helpful, of course. Godliness is indispensable uh, to an elder. But as well as the godliness, there must be a degree of giftedness as well. At the end of verse 2, Paul says elders must be able to teach. So if the elders are those who are given this noble task of shepherding the flock, and if the primary means of doing that is through the preaching and the teaching of God's word, then the ability to teach is obviously going to be a requirement when considering prospective elders. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that every elder is going to be in full-time pastoral ministry as a a pastor teacher. Again, verse uh, 17 of chapter 5 implies that, doesn't it? Uh, There are elders, and then amongst those elders, there are certain ones who particularly labor in teaching and preaching. So there is something of a distinction there. But in general, elders should have a good grasp of God's word, how to read it, how to understand it, how to apply it appropriately, both to themselves and to others. These are the necessary qualifications, says Paul, for those who would be elders in the church. Put very simply, elders must be godly and elders must be gifted for that task. And then to finish with this morning, just very briefly, I want to think about a number of applications of all of this. How do we respond to these words of Paul as a church? Well, the first application is, of course, to those who are already elders in the life of the church. And this is a good opportunity, isn't it, to reflect on this great privilege that has been entrusted to us, this noble task of serving as an overseer, an elder in the church, And to be reminded of the kind of lives we should be living. And to ask for God's help to make us more and more like the elders we ought to be for the good of the church here. Again, be reminded of those words of Peter. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Paul says to the Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Then to those of you who are not elders, the application is this. Would you pray for us? 
We need your prayers very much. Pray that we would live up to these high standards that are set before us here in 1 Timothy 3. Pray that our godliness would increase. Pray that our giftedness would increase in order that we can serve you better. Pray for your elders. And of course, while you're at it, you can also pray that God would raise up amongst us more men who will in time become elders in the church. And then finally, as we close, a word to those of you who potentially could be elders in the future. And again, this morning is an opportunity for you to take stock of where you're at. You've heard this morning not only of the title of overseer or elder, but also something of the, the job description and the necessary qualifications for that. And it may be the case that this is something that you aspire to yourself. You desire this noble task. And if so, well, let me encourage you in that. Pray about it. And by God's grace, seek to cultivate the kind of godliness that Paul speaks about here. First and foremost. And along with cultivating godliness in your life, in relation to yourself, in relation to whatever family you have, and in relation to everyone else in the church and in society, as well as that godliness, cultivate the gifts that God has given to you. Has he given you the ability uh, to teach God's word? And if so, then take those opportunities develop those gifts and we trust that in God's good timing not only will you desire this noble task yourself but also God will call you to it and the church will recognize it because they see in your life all of these qualifications for it let's pray together Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus, our good shepherd, cares for his sheep, the whole flock, his church. And we thank you that to that end, he therefore raises up those who will serve as his under-shepherds, caring for the church, leading the church, feeding the church. And we pray for each of those in this congregation who has been entrusted with this noble task of being an overseer. We pray that you would help each of us to fulfill this task well for the well-being of your people here. We pray that you would help us to grow both in godliness and in giftedness. Help us to be above reproach in relation to ourselves and our families and everyone else. Help us to serve and lead your people here well. And Father, we pray that you would raise up and provide us with those men who in the future will become elders within this congregation. We pray that you would put that good desire into their hearts. Help them even now to be growing in godliness and in giftedness. And make this evident to us all as a congregation, we pray. And Father, we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus and for the good of the church and for your glory's sake. Amen.